As you noticed when you came into the commons and as you can see from the decorations in the sanctuary that we have shifted our attention to the season of Advent, to Christmas, when we not only remember and rejoice in the incarnation, but we remember and look forward to Christ's second coming. I want to thank Aaliyah Dutzman for all the decorations. I, I didn't go into as much detail as I will right now, but she spent hours coming, setting up, moving things around, and making this place look more festive. And thank you, Aaliyah. Uh, today's sermon will be covering chapter 1, verses 57 through 80 in the Gospel of Luke. So we continue in our series. I timed it uh, so that we would be in uh, the stories of, of surrounding Christmas in Luke when we came to Advent. That's partly why we did Malachi before starting Luke. And it also, uh, intentionally, I did that because we got into John the Baptist, which we will uh, once again be looking at John the Baptist and, and the story surrounding his birth. If you're in the Pew Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, you will find this passage on page 856, Luke 1, verses 57 through 80. In this morning's passage, Luke will again return to the story of a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and the miraculous details surrounding the birth of their son. I know it was shorter and you just, you just sat down, but I hope uh, that all those who are able are ready to stand because I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 1, 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And, the and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show, us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this season. We know that we're not commanded to celebrate Christmas, but it seems right to us that we would recognize the mystery, the wonder, the greatness of the incarnation, that your son, the second person of the Trinity, would take on human flesh, not just for a time, but for all time, that he would remain divine, totally God, truly God, and at the same time, take on flesh to redeem us. It seems right to us to celebrate this reality and to look forward to his second coming. And Lord, I pray that our time in this season of looking to Christ's second coming and celebrating his first coming would help us to fight off the distractions that so often come in this season. Lord, there are so many good things, so many wonderful things that you have blessed us with. 
Many of us will be gathering with family members and friends to to celebrate the birth of your son. Though some will not recognize him, will not talk about him, besides a, a Merry Christmas or a few carols that mention his name, we know that this time is a time for us to truly prepare our hearts to worship and to delight in the greatness of the gospel. I pray that as a church in our Advent season that this is what you would do in us, that we would not be distracted by all the shiny things that will come our way, all the sales and the, and the exciting new things that, that we might come into in this season as people share gifts with us and we share gifts with others. May your great gift in your son be our delight. Lord, keep us from wandering, from delighting in lesser things. Help us in this season to delight in you, our great God, more and more. God, you are worthy of our praise, of our worship. You made us so that we would worship you, so that our hearts would be glad only in you. And we have come this morning to sing praise to you, to pray to you together, to confess our sins, and to to hear an assurance of our pardon, to hear your word, and to hear it preached, and to be changed by it. So, Lord, we pray that you would do these things. Of course we give you thanks. We are people who give you thanks all the time, every single day, not just on Thanksgiving, but every day, for you are a God who blesses us with all that we have. You've given us what we need. You've sent your son to take care of our greatest need, and that is our our need to be redeemed, our need to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to you. Lord, we pray now that as your word goes forth, that that where there is unbelief, you you would destroy it where there are people who have not yet bowed their knees to King Jesus, that through the preaching of your word, by the power of your spirit, you would move hearts and move knees, that he would receive the honor and the praise that is due to his name. Lord, I pray for those Christians this morning who are weak in faith. Use this passage and and the, the preaching of your word to stir up greater faith in you that we would see and behold afresh the great promises that you have made to your people in Christ. Lord, I pray for families, that as many of us gather with non-Christian family members who we're burdened for, who we love so much, who we so appreciate that that we recognize your common grace and for they have been used by you to protect us and and teach us things that we needed to learn and and provide for us, that that we would open our mouths, Lord, that you would fill our, our mouths with wise words that lead to Christ. Let us Pick good battles, battles not over things and over traditions, but ultimately over, over the gospel. And help us to be winsome and loving and, and passionate about the gospel. Not passionate about things, but passionate about Jesus and, and our family and our friends hearing about Jesus in this season. You will give us many open doors to walk through. But it will be hard. It will be a struggle. And we know that it will be worth it. So I pray that even now as as plans are being made and many of us have fuller schedules, meeting with people that we love, that we grew up with, that 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 we call mom or dad or sister or brother or nephew or niece, son or daughter, that that our mouths would be full of praise to you and that you would use it to to open more eyes and, and fill more hearts with praise to Jesus. Lord, I pray for for our church that we would we would find joy and unity in Christ in this season, that our joy would be fuller and fuller together, that we would fan the flame of faith in this season, pointing each other to Jesus. And may this sermon and and this time together in worship to you be used to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this morning's passage, we will see God fulfill a great promise that he made to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We will see Zechariah learn an important lesson, a lesson that we need to learn and we will need at times to relearn. And we will see this Zechariah, this man who now sees God's promises fuller and more beautiful. Praise God. Give praise to the one who has fulfilled his word. We begin with, with the promise fulfilled. Earlier in Luke 1, 5 through 7, we we were introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there we read these words. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so here we find Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, a gentleman came up to me and said, you don't call your wife an old, your old lady. That's, that's inappropriate. The biblical way to address her maturity in, in years is advanced in years. And so I don't think that that's a great biblical principle. That's just a good life principle, a way to, to bless your spouse. Uh, the, the, the scriptures tell us that Elizabeth was advanced in years. So here's this couple, godly, righteous couple, advanced in years without child. And then we're told that Zechariah, a priest, was called to duty to serve in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And while he was serving in the temple, an angel of the Lord named Gabriel appears to him as he's burning incense and and about to pray to the Lord. And in verses 13 and 14, we, we read, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, the angel tells him, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And so this this man finds out that after all these years, after all those prayers, maybe they'd even given up on praying for a son, they're going to have a a boy, a son. God is going to bless him with this child. Zechariah's response to this good news is recorded for us in verses 18 through 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God made a promise to Zechariah in the temple. Though his wife Elizabeth had been barren her whole life, and though they had been unable to have children in her childbearing years, in her old age, Elizabeth would miraculously become pregnant and give birth to a son. And this son was to be named John. The first verse in this morning's passage tells us that about 10 months after the angel told Zechariah that his wife would conceive and give birth to a son, that it happened just as God said it would. God kept his word. He fulfilled his promise. We read in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And so despite the obstacle of age, though it seemed impossible for Zechariah and Elizabeth to conceive a child, Elizabeth conceived and gave birth to a son. It was a miracle. She could not have a child. She was old past the time when she was physically able to bear a child, to conceive and give birth to a child, and here she was, conceiving and giving birth to a child. God overcame Elizabeth's age and barrenness so that in old age, Zechariah became a father and Elizabeth became a mother to a baby boy who would grow up to play an important part in salvation history. God had promised to send in Elijah. Malachi 3.15. God had promised there would be one who would be sent, like Elijah, to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Christ. And Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, whom we know as John the Baptist, was that promised forerunner. Zechariah was told, not only will you have a baby boy, you're going to have a special baby boy who's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, who will be used in salvation history in a unique way. Well, what does this story teach us? How does this passage apply to us today? It's important to be clear on what this story does not teach us. It does not teach us that if we are righteous before God like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we will get whatever we pray for. After all, they prayed for a child and eventually God blessed them with a child. The application is not that if a Christian prays long and hard enough for a child, they'll have one. God has not promised us a child like he promised Zechariah and Elizabeth, a son. For some who have not had a child, whether because of barrenness, infertility, or or some other reason, childlessness has been a great difficulty, a a struggle, a sorrow for them. But in, in such cases, God has not broken a promise. What this story does teach us is that whatever the obstacle, even if it seems impossible, if God has said it, if he has promised it, then he will do it. It's as good as done. God always keeps his word. He fulfills his promises. And so here's the connection between his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth and and us. God always fulfills his word. 
Every single time, every single promise that he has made, he keeps. Just as God kept his word and fulfilled his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he will keep his word and fulfill every promise that he has made to us, church. And God has made many promises to his people. Some of God's promises require something of us. You can say that they're conditional. For example, God promises to give us wisdom if we ask him for it. James 1, 5 through 8. Those of you who lack wisdom, who especially are feeling that in this season, I feel it all the time as a dad. Lord, what do I do here with my son who is disobedient, who is rebelling against my imperfect but loving rule in our home? I'm, so, I'm trying to point him to Jesus and he, he wants nothing to do with it. What am I to do? Pray, God, give me wisdom. What is the avenue to walk down with with my son so that he sees my love and receives the discipline that I have for him out of love? I don't know how to talk to this brother or sister about a sin issue. You know what we so often do? You know what I can do? I just let it go. Don't address it. I don't want to go into a conflict. I would rather just you know, pretend like there's not an issue. What should I do instead? Pray for wisdom. How do I address this issue? Lord, please give me the passage, the scripture, the truth that I need to present in love to that brother, that sister. How can I share the gospel with grandma or grandpa? They're, they're staunchly against the truth of justification by faith alone. How can I bring it to them? What do we do? We just oftentimes keep our mouth shut. What should we do instead? Pray for wisdom. God also promises to provide us with a way out of temptation, but we must take it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. Are you struggling with temptation in this season? Maybe the, the deals, the Black Friday deals, and all the, all the, the things that are, are now being sold has got you really tempted to, to blow all your money on stuff. Maybe you start to make all these excuses on why you need to buy these things. Need to buy this or that, and, and oh, I want to bless this person, but really you just want to spend the money. You're tempted. God's going to give you a way out of temptation, but you must take it. God promises us his peace to guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus if we bring our anxieties to him in prayer. Are you anxious? Don't just sit in anxiety. Fight off anxiety in prayer. Go to the Lord. Lord, I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about this. I'm overcome with grief about this. Lord, here it is. Help me. God promises to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You must bring it to him in prayer. But most of God's promises require nothing of us. We don't have to ask, seek, or pray. They are promises that God has made to every Christian if you have or you will one day repent of your sin and trust in the sinless life, the sin-atoning death and the life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ, these promises are for you, every single one of them. Uh, this is by no means an exhaustive list. It's only a sampling of some of God's great promises to every Christian. God promises salvation to all who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Every single one who trusts in Jesus Christ, no matter no matter how bad of a sinner they are, no, no matter how far away from God they are, if they trust in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. God promises that. God promises to forgive our past, present, and future sins because of Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. We don't start with Jesus and then move to some other atoning work. It's Jesus alone. He's the only way to be forgiven of our sins. And in Christ, our past, present, and future sins have been paid for. God promises us new and eternal life in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18, 17 and 18, and Romans 6, 23. God promises new life. The old is gone, the new has come. And we have eternal life, a life that cannot be taken away from us. It's eternal. God promises us the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. We're not fighting this fight of the Christian life alone. His Spirit is in us, leading us, helping us to fight, reminding us of the truth. God promises his love, which we can never be separated from, Romans 8, 38, and 39. You can't even separate yourself from God's love. Maybe you're trying to do that. Maybe you're, you're apathetic towards the things of God. God's love has even grown in your mind stale. You, you, you're looking for something else. You can't separate yourself from his love. That's how strong his love is for you. 
God promises that he will work all things together for our good. Romans 8, 28. Your suffering, your struggling, ultimately will be used by God for your good. God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. No matter what your feelings are telling you, if you're in Christ, God has not left you, has not forsaken you. He is with you. God promises the Christian that their salvation is secure. It cannot be lost or taken away. John 10, 28. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. Christ died for you. He atoned for your sins. You're his. You belong to him. The devil's not strong enough. You're not strong enough. The world's not strong enough to get you out of God's grips. That's a sweet and precious promise. God promises us that like Jesus, our bodies will be one day resurrected bodily and we will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. We're not going to be floating around like angels, spirit beings forever. We die, we're with the Lord, and one day our bodies will be raised, our spirits and our bodies will be together forever in the new heavens, the new earth, and we will be like Jesus glorified. It's a promise of God's. And God promises that one day Jesus will return for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. And we look forward to that day when Jesus returns. And he will return. Why? Because God has promised it. All of God's promises are wonderful and true. Every single one of them. But to be sustained and strengthened and fueled by these promises, we do need to remember them. If, if I promise my son something, you know what? Especially if it's a snack or uh, he gets to watch a football game or something, you know what? He's going to remind me of that promise. Sometimes I forget. God doesn't forget his promises. We do. And so we must remember his promises. We must believe his promises. We must grab hold tightly of them. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, the sacred promises, though in themselves most sure and precious, are of no avail for the comfort and sustenance of the soul unless you grasp them by faith, plead them in prayer, expect them by hope, and receive them with gratitude. There is work in the promises. They're always true. They don't change whether you're believing them in this moment or not. They're true. They're given to you in Jesus Christ's finished work. God has promised them for you. Church, when we come to a passage like this in which we see God fulfilling a promise, even if it's a promise like this one that was made to a man and a woman, not us, but a specific man and woman, Zechariah and Elizabeth, but yet it's fulfilled. In this fulfilled promise, we are exhorted to grasp God's promises by faith. To truly believe his promises, to hold tightly to them, to trust that God will fulfill them. And here's why. Every single fulfilled promise in scripture offers us a reminder, an encouragement, belief, trust. You're doubting his promises. Look at what he has done. For Zechariah and Elizabeth. That, that's the application for us. He did it for them. He fulfilled his promise. And just as he did it for them, he will do it for you, Christian. Every single one of his promises. Trust that he will fulfill them. Every fulfilled promise in scripture provides us with an opportunity to fight unbelief. Encouraging us to plead God's promises in prayer. Not so that God remembers, but so that we remember them. So that we begin to rest our weary hearts in his promises again. Every fulfilled promise in scripture encourages us to hope in God's promises. Knowing that just as God fulfilled that fulfilled promise in scripture, he will fulfill all of his other promises. Every fulfilled promise in scripture encourages us to hope in God. It reminds us that hope in God will not disappoint. Hope in everyone else and everything else will in the end disappoint. Your money will not satisfy your hope. It will be taken from you at some point. Either it will be given to your children as an inheritance when you die and they will spend it, maybe unwisely, or you'll spend it. Maybe it will be all used up to pay for your care when you're old. You cannot ultimately hope in your money. Your career, you can't hope in your career. Your children, I love my kids. I can't put my hope in my kids. What I can put my hope in is in Jesus Christ. In all the promises that God has made to us in Christ. They will not disappoint us. 
God will not disappoint us. Every fulfilled promise in Scripture helps move our hearts from rejecting God's promises to receiving them with gratitude. In this passage, we see Zechariah move from unbelief to trusting the word of the Lord. We see that he learned this valuable lesson, that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. Even if it seems impossible, even if it takes a miracle, and in Zechariah's case, it took a miracle. That's why he couldn't believe it at first. That's why he didn't believe it at first. How in the world is Elizabeth, who's advanced in her years, going to conceive a child after all these years? Maybe she was 50 or 60 years old. How is she going to have a child? He he couldn't believe it. And yet he learns that God will fulfill his promises, even if it takes a miracle. Church, in this way, Zechariah serves an example to us. He reminds us that even the righteous and mature believer can struggle to believe God's promises and will need to learn or relearn to believe God's promises afresh. Remember, Zechariah is introduced to us as a righteous man. This is not a wayward, uh, ungodly man. This is a righteous man who has lived for the Lord, trusted in the Lord for a long time. And yet he's confronted with this promise of of God and it's good news. He's blessed with, it's not a confrontation, this is a blessing, though he's a little scared by the angel. But this is a blessing, this is good news and he cannot believe it. And in him we are reminded that at times believing God's promises will not be easy. Instead, unbelief will be easy. It'll be easier for even the mature Christian at times to not believe in God's promises. We're reminded that sometimes we Christians will need to fight especially hard against doubt. We'll need to fight especially hard to believe what God has promised that he will do. That there is not a coasting in the Christian life. We forget that sometimes. We, we, we think, we feel as if we're in a peacetime. That the battle's over. I believe that ultimately the war is won. But there are battles to fight, especially in the Christian life. Until Christ returns, we're in a fight. And sometimes maybe it's because partly because we're Americans and we live in the comfort of America. And even as things are changing and we're being, uh, we're being pressed and there's uh, more struggle for the Christian in America, we, we have all these freedoms. And so we're tempted to just coast. It is a battle to follow Jesus in this world, to trust in God's promises, especially as struggle comes, whether it's internal and battling your own sin or external and it's the sin of others, whether it's in in family members, friends, people that you thought were brothers or sisters in Christ, abandoning the gospel and the, the discouragement that comes. There's so much fight to fight in the Christian life. And at times you will especially feel it. Sometimes you'll feel stronger and it'll be easier to believe God's promises and other times it won't be. It will be hard. It will be hard. And sometimes you will feel like you're failing. And Zechariah reminds us that this is is going to happen. We also see in Zechariah the result of the Lord's discipline. Zechariah learned to trust the Lord in part through the Lord's discipline. Remember, as a consequence for his unbelief, Zechariah was not able to speak. And because we're told that people had to use signs to communicate with him, uh, it seems to me that he was not able to hear as well. Otherwise, they could just speak. But they have to use signs in order to communicate to him. So he's, he's unable to hear and unable to speak. And why? Because of his doubt. Because of his doubt, God gave this righteous man 10 months of quiet to teach him to trust the Lord. God is committed to teaching his people to trust him. The evidence that Zechariah learned this lesson is found in verses 57 through 66. We're told that Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives gathered after their baby boy was born to rejoice with Elizabeth because of the mercy that God had shown to her. This is already a fulfillment of what the angel said would happen. This baby boy would be born and many would rejoice. (laughs) Eight days later, people rejoice, and this is amazing. It's a miracle. And that on the eighth day, when it came time for the baby boy to be given his name, they 
the crowd that had gathered, these neighbors and family members, assumed that this miracle baby would be named after his father, Zechariah. Names were especially important in ancient times, and it was customary to name a son after his father or a close male relative. Now, that's still, for some of us, the custom. We, we look back into our, our ancestry, and we pull a name, and we put it on our, our child, or we draw from Scripture, and we say, we, we want our child to, to be like this one or like this one, and so we give them an important name. Names matter. In God's providence, I was given another example of the importance of names when I spoke this week with Mike and Stacy Creech. I try to Skype with them. We try to Skype every single week. It doesn't always work, but we, we were able to Skype this week. And, and they gave me an update on how their, their ministry in Senegal was going. And they shared some exciting news. They were given Senegalese names. What this means is that the people in their community, the, the, the very uh, people that they're seeking to bring the gospel to, uh, though they're not yet in the village, they're now with Bainuk people who uh, they're learning the Bainuk language from. Well, these people in that community, and even on, on a visit to the, the tribe that they'll be moving into eventually, uh, they, they were given these Senegalese names. I, I asked Mike to phonetically spell his Senegalese name for me, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm not going to say it right, but, but Mike's Senegalese name is Seku Jacabo. Seku Jacabo. Now, Seku is just a common first name, but Jacabo is a family name that connects the creatures with another Senegalese family. In essence, a family, a community has said, you belong here. We see you as, as being part of us now. And so we're going to give you a name. We don't see you as an outsider. And this name, as, as it's used, as other people ask him what his name is, and he uses the Senegalese name, they, they will know what family he's connected to and the region in Senegal he is from. It's a significant step in their gospel ministry to, to plant a church among the Bainuk people. And it all has to do with a name. They, they were excited to tell me, I've got a new name. Because names matter. But Zechariah and Elizabeth's son would not carry an important family name because Elizabeth, following the angel's instructions, which we can assume were given to her from Zechariah, said no. Her son's name would not be Zechariah. It would be John. And we see in the text that that didn't sit well with the neighbors and family. Uh, maybe you've named one of your children something and, and uh, you start to share it with other people and you kind of get that and like, oh, not great. And they kind of change the subject. You know, it just doesn't sit well. Maybe they wanted you to name them after them. You know, maybe they wanted you to use a, a special family middle name or something. That's, that's what's going on. These relatives, these neighbors are like, no, that, that can't be right. Let's, let's go to dad. Let's, let's get another uh, thought on this. And so they, they, they use signs again to communicate with Zechariah, and they, they ask him what his baby boy's name should be. And in verse 63, we're told that Zechariah wrote down on a tablet, his name is John. And that at that moment, the Lord's discipline was over. And Zechariah could now miraculously hear and speak again. It was a miracle. He, he was unable to, to hear and speak for 10 months. And all of a sudden, he writes down, his name is John, and he can hear and speak. Zechariah had learned to trust the Lord. And the evidence was that he was doing just as he was told to do. He named his son John. In doing so, he rightly acknowledged that the birth of his son was the fulfillment of God's promise. Church, sometimes God will teach us to believe his word and trust his promise by disciplining us. It may be through loss. Likely, it will not be through the loss of our voice or of our hearing like Zechariah. More likely, it will be through the loss of a position, a career, a comfort, a possession, or a relationship. We make idols of things and of people. And God is not good with that. And he will discipline us in order to remove that idol, to address our hearts, to teach us to trust him and to believe his promises, that he is our all-satisfying God, that he will keep his word. He will do this to teach us the importance of believing his promises so that we remember all that is ours in Jesus Christ and we cling to all that is ours in Jesus Christ. The Lord disciplines his people because he loves his people. I've mentioned this whenever discipline comes up. We tell our kids this all the time, and I still don't think they believe us. You're going to bed early, son, because I love you. Like, what? 
that doesn't make sense. If you love me, you let me stay up later. Son, you're not going to be doing that or this. You're not having ice cream tonight. You can have broccoli or carrots or meat, but no ice cream for you. Why? Because I love you. And even though we might be adults, we can struggle with the same thing. Why would you take that from me, God? Why, why, wouldn't you, why wouldn't you let me continue in that career? Why wouldn't you let me do this? Why wouldn't you move me into this position? Or why wouldn't you give me that blessing? Because he loves us. Sometimes it's for other reasons, but sometimes it's because he's disciplining us. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it is because of his love that he disciplines us in chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love, and I think verse 11 is especially helpful. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Sometimes people read the Bible and be like, this is not relevant. It doesn't speak to me. It doesn't make sense. And then you read a verse like that and you say, yes, this is relevant. This cuts through all generations of people because we're all the same ultimately. We have a sin problem. We need Jesus and we need the Lord to work in our hearts. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. At times, the Lord will discipline to confront and dismantle unbelief. Maybe you're under the discipline of the Lord right now. Why? One of the reasons might be because you are not believing God. You're believing in something or someone else. God destroys idols that we put our hope in so that we learn to or relearn to believe his promises and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. The name John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Zechariah experienced God's grace not only in God giving him his son, John, but he also experienced God's grace through God disciplining him as a son. For the Lord loves Zechariah enough to teach him to trust his word, to believe his promises. God's discipline is a work of his grace. He will not let us linger forever in our doubt and unbelief. That is the worst place for a Christian to be. Doubting God's promises, not believing his word. And so what will God do? He will discipline us. And in that moment, it will seem painful, not pleasant. I, I have never prayed for the Lord's discipline on my life. I've never prayed that prayer. And thankfully, God knows way far and way better than I do. And he has disciplined me at times in my life. And if you're his son... If you're his daughter, he's going to discipline you at times. Not because he doesn't love you. Not because he's keeping something from, from you. But because he loves you and he's giving you more reason to hope and to trust in him. He's taking away your idols, giving you reminders of your need for him. And what are the first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth after he's been disciplined by the Lord? What's the first thing that he says? We read in verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. He did not complain. Lord, why 10 months? Just a day would have been enough. A week, maybe a month, but 10 months of not being able to talk or hear? This shows his repentant heart. He's been corrected. He's not making excuses. He's willing to... to Forget about himself because in that moment he doesn't care about himself. What he cares about is the Lord and God's fulfilled promise. Having experienced the discipline of the Lord and having learned to believe God's promises at the birth of his son, Zechariah is in awe of God. 
He gives praise. He blesses God. This is the heart that is stewing on, that is grabbing hold of, that is resting in God's promises. What comes out of that heart? Praise. One way for you to see and and try to discern a little bit in your own heart what's going on, are you delighting in God? Do you praise him, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week? Do you fight for joy in Christ throughout your days? Are you praising God throughout the day? Is your heart glad in God? If not, then that, that might indicate there's an issue, that you've, you've found yourself resting in the things of this world and not in the promises of God. Zechariah, his praise continues. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told that he prophesied and that this prophecy, which goes on from verses 68 through 79, uh, has been given the title the Benedictus because the first word in it, blessing in Latin, is Benedictus. And so uh, we looked at Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat. And here in Zechariah's song, his hymn of praise, this prophecy that he gives of of praise to God, uh, we have the Benedictus. It is, yes, a prophecy. It is also a song of praise, and it is an announcement of the coming of the Lord's salvation from a man. Think, think about who's saying these things. A man who once doubted God's word, but is now overflowing with faith in God's promises. It shows God bringing a righteous man who was weak in faith to a place where he is unashamed to declare in front of others with passion the greatness of God. That's what's going on in his heart. He is amazed at God. When I was first saved, uh, there was a a phrase that we would use uh, to describe this type of thing, uh, on fire for the Lord. I don't think it's a very good phrase because fire means judgment in scripture. So uh, this, th- this phrase is kinda, kind of a, a goofy old phrase that is fine to retire. Uh, but, but that's what comes to mind. You know, when you're first saved, there's certain things that, that, whether it's a song or a phrase that kind of sticks with you for a while. As I read through this, I was like, he's on fire for the Lord, even though that's not a good phrase. This man is consumed with the promises of God. He loves God. And what comes out of his heart is this song. I want to read it to you again, and, and, and I won't be able to read it with the same gusto, the same passion that, that Zechariah did, but, but I'm going to try this time. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. A heart that is glad, overflowing in faith in the promises of God. This song is filled with Old Testament quotes, paraphrases, and allusions. There, there, there might be almost a hundred references and allusions and quotes and paraphrases in just these verses, alluding back to the promises of God. It can be divided into two parts, but both parts have this theme that after years of silence, God is once again visiting his people, and, and this, this is reason to rejoice it's reason to have hope, and it's reason to sing praise. In, in verse 68, Zechariah proclaims, he declares that God has come and has redeemed his people. He speaks about it as if it's already happened. This is what happens when you believe God's promises, when your heart is resting. Do you, the angel came to Zechariah and said, your wife is is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And, and he didn't believe it. And now, 
He's saying, in essence, God has already done these things. He's speaking in past tense. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. He's in Mary's womb. He hasn't lived a sinless life. He hasn't died a sin-atoning death on the cross for our sins. He hasn't been raised from the dead three days later. He hasn't ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's ruling and reigning through his church right now. It's all to come. And yet here is Zechariah saying, it's done. This is faith on display. This is believing God's promises. It's done. He knows even though these things haven't yet fully happened, they will happen because he is a man who believes God's promises. In verses 69 through 71, he alludes to the promises that God made concerning a great king from the line of David who would save God's people from their enemies. So he's saying, remember, that, that, that king that was promised in the line of David, he's coming, he's here, he's coming. Then in verses 72 and 73, Zechariah connects those promises that were made about this king who would come from the line of David to the same promises that were made to Abraham. And, and in doing this, he lays the groundwork for understanding that all of God's promises are ultimately f- fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we trace through the covenants and all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament, ultimately they all find their end. They're all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in this song, that's what we see. Promises to David, fulfilled in Jesus. The promises made to Abraham, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And in verses 74 and 75, we see God's purpose. Why is he doing all this? So that his people can serve him. Language of the Exodus. So that his people can worship him and praise him and enjoy him and delight in God without fear, in holiness and righteousness before God all of our days. We might summarize verses 74 and 75 as God is going to deliver us for his glory and for our joy. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And here we get another glimpse of that. God is going to rescue his people so that they would what? Worship him. God's purpose in saving us is so that in holiness, with glad hearts, we can delight in God for the rest of our days. That's why it's so silly and foolish to waste our days living for the things of this world. The gospel doesn't just free us from hell. The gospel frees us so that we can now worship God. We were made for that purpose. You were made an image bearer so that you would delight in God, not so that you would spend all your days playing video games, not so that you would spend all your life making a lot of money, not so that you would spend the rest of your days living for anything in this world. You were made, and Christian, you were saved so that you would worship Jesus. Treasure him above all. And Zechariah says, now God is bringing this about. Dealing with the greatest barrier between God and his people forever, our sin problem. In this song of praise, Zechariah is announcing that God is coming to his people. This truth produced so much joy in Zechariah that he had to praise God. And it continues to produce joy in all who by grace have been forgiven of their sins, declared righteous by grace through faith in Christ. God has given us the greatest blessing that we could ever have. Christian, he's given you himself. That's what he has done. He has come. Apathetic, wayward, maybe even non-Christian who professes faith in Christ. This is the greatest blessing of the gospel. You get Jesus. You get God. Christian, you get to serve and enjoy and worship God. Though we deserve damnation, we get to be part of exaltation. We get to be instruments of praise forever and ever and ever. And it begins the moment of salvation. In the second part of Zechariah's song, he speaks about his own newborn son, and the important ministry that he will have is the prophet of the Most High, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. His son, John the Baptist, would be used to give people knowledge of salvation, to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He would announce the forgiveness of sins and the tender mercy of our God. Do you know God's tender mercy? Because that's what it is. It's tender. 
God would use Zechariah's son to prepare hearts for Jesus Christ, pave the way for Jesus. And then Zechariah's song of praise ends with allusions and references to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sunrise that visits from on high. He is the dawning of a new day in which God has visited his people. God has come to be with us to save us from our sins. Jesus is the one that gives light to those who sit in darkness. Once we were in darkness. If you're a Christian, you're not in darkness anymore because why? Jesus has come to give life to those in the shadow of death. That's why Jesus came, to give us life. Jesus is the one who guides our feet into the way of peace. Once we were not at peace with God, now in Christ we have peace with God. Zechariah's song points us to the greatness of Jesus, to the only one who can save us. Think about this. We were introduced to Zechariah as a righteous man. We see him struggling with doubt, and the closing words that we have from Zechariah, this is it. This is, that. This is all that, that we know from Zechariah. His final words in Scripture are all about Jesus. He tells us that Jesus is coming. God is and will fulfill all his promises. It is another great reversal. And that's one of Luke's themes in this gospel, the great reversal that God does in people. God had made a promise to Zechariah, but Zechariah didn't believe it. There was a consequence for his unbelief. He experienced the discipline of the Lord. And the the Lord's discipline was not meant to crush Zechariah. It was meant to teach him to trust the word of the Lord. And that's why he disciplines us, to teach us to trust him, to stop being so sinfully selfish and self-focused, but to look to God and his promises. And having learned this lesson, Zechariah's final words in Scripture are not full of unbelief. They're filled with praise to God. Church, may we learn from this righteous man to believe God's promises. May any here whose hearts are lingering in unbelief turn to God's word, believe God's promises given to us in Christ, and may all of us this morning find comfort and sustenance for our soul by grasping God's promises by faith, pleading them in prayer, expecting them by hope, and receiving them with gratitude. Let's pray. God, we we thank you for your promises and for all the fulfilled promises that you have recorded for us in your word. For they give us more evidence, more confidence, more reminders, more encouragement to believe all the promises that are ours in Christ. Lord, move those of us who are caught up in unbelief, who have been captured by the things of this world, who are trusting in not Jesus, but in ourselves or some false idol that cannot satisfy or save from this place of unbelief. Lord, we pray for those among us who are not yet trusting in Christ, who have not repented of their sins, turned from their sin, acknowledged their need for Jesus, and trusted wholly and only in his finished work. Lord, open eyes, give ears to the deaf, change hearts. Lord, I pray that in this season as a church, as we look to the second coming of our Savior, and we remember his first coming, that our hearts would truly be glad in you, our God that you would use us in all the different get-togethers and extra family meetings and all the traditions to open our mouths, give us confidence in the gospel to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us not shrink back from praise. Let us find in Zechariah's song a song for us to sing as well about the greatness and the goodness of our God who always keeps his word and fulfills his promise. We pray these things in the great name of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.